KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, abortion politics and Republican power, Rick Perlstein will explain the long history of how abortion became a Republican issue, starting way back in 1972, when Nixon used it for the first time to try to win the votes of Democrats who were Catholic. Rick's latest book is Reaganland. Also, our favorite documentary of the summer that just ended was Summer of Soul. John Powers liked it too. He will explain. Ella Taylor is off today. But first, today's Washington political update. And for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. He's back in D.C. after a vacation in California. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John, whichever coast it may be. Okay. Well, while you were on vacation, we had a spike in COVID caused by unvaccinated people getting the Delta variant. We had disastrous flooding caused by climate change. We had Joe Biden's approval ratings sinking because of the messy Afghan withdrawal. And we had Joe Manchin publishing an op-ed in the Washington Post calling for what he called a pause in taking up the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill because of what he calls concerns over rising debt and inflation. So we're feeling pretty crummy about things right now. The House and Senate are both going back to work and it's crunch time now for Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to get these two infrastructure bills passed into law There's the bipartisan roads and bridges one and the big one, the one we are calling the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill with the huge and wonderful social programs. But it looks like we're going to be spending the next month or two focused again on Joe Manchin and what he wants. This is not a happy prospect, not even a very interesting one. You and I have gone over this ground a dozen times in the last few months. So it would seem, yes. The Joe Manchin problem is not going away, but uh, it is focused really on two questions. How much uh, can the Democrats uh, get through their reconciliation bill that can pass through the eye of the needle that is the brains of Joe Manchin and, uh, and, and Kristen Sinema? I just came up with that figure of speech. Um, it's good. Yeah. And, and they've got, you know, uh, that actually probably is more a question not of months, but of two or three weeks. Uh, there's kind of this self-imposed September 27th deadline, which is the date uh, that the House needs to vote on the infrastructure bill. And the votes uh, among Democrats, among Democratic progressives, will probably not be there for the infrastructure bill unless uh, you know the deal, it, it's clear that they get the lion's share of what's in the reconciliation bill. Now, I have a friend who is something of a mansionologist uh, <laughs> who, who, uh, who thinks that mansion will go uh, not for 3.5 trillion, but something like 2.9 trillion. So what gets axed in that is, uh, you know, who, who knows? I mean, mansion obviously is not a fan of the most ambitious uh, legislation to uh, address the climate crisis. Although at the rate things are going, um, you know, seawaters may rise up up into uh, West Virginia by uh, 
uh, you know, by the time this process is completed, we shall see. Uh, so that's an issue. The other huge issue that where there is the uh, mansion and more than mansion obstacle uh, that immediately the Democrats are going to be confronting is the voting rights legislation. And there the question is, how do they do that so long? Can they persuade um, Manchin and Cinema and a few other folks to uh, scrap the filibuster, if only for that uh, for that issue? Um, there is a school of thought around around D.C. that um, Manchin and folks have uh, signaled to Schumer that they would uh, at least go for uh, switching it to a talking filibuster where, wherein uh, you know, the Republican opponents uh, have to talk. Now, Republicans uh, have been uh, you know, honing their talking abilities for, for quite some time, so I'm not sure that that will really have any effect, but uh, that's the eye of the needle there, and it's not at all clear that switching it to a talking requirement is going to actually enable voting rights legislation to pass. Now, in the best of all possible worlds, maybe once the talking goes on and on and on and on and on, you know, Schumer will say, well, okay, Joe, um, how about just simply voting to scrap the filibuster? Uh, and we don't know that there's gonna be any guarantee of that. So I think that's pretty much where it's at uh, in uh, in Mansionville, aka Washington D.C., <laughs> there is one new thing in the politics of the infrastructure bills. Uh, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee spent part of his summer break campaigning for the bills in swing states, Michigan, Iowa, I think Indiana. I don't think Senate committee chairs usually campaign for grassroots support in swing states for particular bills. Who is this guy and why is he doing this? Uh, I, I think he, uh, I think the name is Sanders, uh, uh, Bernard uh, Bertram, Bernie, anyway, Bernie Sanders. And he's doing it because I think quite rightly, he sees this as the one chance to uh, push America in a, a singularly more social democratic direction, which has really been sort of in his mind and in actuality, the raison d'etre of his career. Uh, and he sees this, I think, rightly, as almost like his third presidential campaign, that this is, this is really campaigning for some, not all, but some of what he would have done had he been president. Uh, and it's, I think any historian will, uh, will say, if much of the, most of the stuff in the reconciliation bill is enacted, uh, historians will say this is a moment comparable to the New Deal and Great Society, 1935-1965. And, and that is a monumental achievement that is as much, if not more, Bernie's than anyone else's. And he, it makes perfect sense that he's stomping around uh, trying to build support for it. These bills are the one hope that Democrats have of successful campaigns in the 2022 midterm elections, which are just about one year from this week. All the pundits say it's gonna be bad for the, for the Democrats, that the Democrats are almost certain to lose control of the House, which usually happens at this point 
in a presidency, even without gerrymandering and vote suppression. And we are also told Democrats may not be able to win control of the Senate. Uh, Gerrymandering and vote suppression are not new Republican tactics. They've been at it for decades, long before Trump. We've often said Trump did not create today's Republican Party with its authoritarian and anti-democratic project. The Republicans have been headed in this direction for a long time, but Trump has contributed something new and truly ominous that may well be a factor in the 2022 midterms. You've recently written about this. I have, and and that is that Republicans seem bent on subjecting any election result uh, where they haven't won to the kind of uh, claims of illegitimacy that Trump has raised uh, because of his psychological incapacity to acknowledge uh, his own failures at at the polls or throughout his life at anything. Uh, And and somehow this, uh, somewhere between neurosis and psychosis, which really involves a, a, a blatant denial of reality, has now become a sort of standard Republican strategy. Uh, example one is California Republicans already saying that if Gavin Newsom wins, it, it'll be uh, the recall, which is next week. Uh, if he's uh, retained in office, that will be because the Democrats somehow rigged the election. I noted that yesterday, uh, a Republican Senate hopeful in Nevada hoping to unseat Democratic Senator, uh, Democratic Senator there next year, has already said he will sue if he loses because that is obviously Democratic voter uh, rigging. And in the, there are two gubernatorial elections that are not the recall, but that are held this year rather than next year, one in New Jersey where the Democrats have such a preponderant uh, majority that I don't know that Republicans are actually even running anyone, but in Virginia, where the Democrat, uh, uh, who's a Clinton-esque retread, Terry McAuliffe, should win, but Republicans are also saying uh, if McAuliffe wins in November, uh, they're going to allege voter rigging. And you know what this signals is that this may become the standard Republican response to any election loss that they suffer. Uh, this is this is really sick. Um, I mean, it's not only dangerous for democracy, but it's just plunging the nation into the, you know, uh, what do we do when uh, the American right wing is, is completely encased in fantasy land? Uh, that, that's a dangerous prospect. I want to go back to the California recall for a minute. All of us here in California and our listeners have been filling out our mail uh, ballots. How do they think this can be rigged? Well, you know, that, that's a good question. And, and for that, we, I think we should look at, uh, at Arizona, where the right-wing Republicans in the state legislature uh, authorized some uh, fly-by-night uh, uh, company in Florida that is a, a Republican fringe company to uh, examine the ballots so that they show that Trump actually won in Arizona uh, last year rather than losing. Uh, you know, they have yet to release their re- report after, can, you know, delaying it, I don't know, half a dozen times, nine times, 10 times. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they, they, they can't seem to get any 
uh, and any numbers to work out. And they have alleged things like, um, well, the ballots might have been uh, uh, printed on some uh, exotic Chinese bamboo that uh, erased Republican votes. I think we're going to see claims like that. I mean, it's just, it's just completely nonsensical. Now in California, if in the recall, there's a question of uh, the return envelopes that voters are supposed to sign having holes in them, uh, which you know have been, has been the case for many years. They have holes in them as, as an aid to helping visually impaired people uh, uh, you know, know where to sign uh, their ballot. Um, but uh, you know, those holes are, are also now causing uh, republicanly impaired people <laughs> to uh, allege that somehow that is going to enable the vote counting machines to toss out uh, the, the ballots that vote yes on the recall. Hmm. And there was something about not just the holes, but the folds also. Oh, there. the folds, yes, that the, you know, that the ballots were folded uh, and that this made it, uh, it made it hard to vote for some particular uh, alternative candidate, uh, all of whose names are listed on the ballot. Now, the problem is there are 46 people running as alternative candidates. And if you, unless you fold a ballot, um, uh, there's no way you're going to fit that into uh, an envelope. I mean, you might have to, you know, send it by uh, uh, UPS or something in a box. Uh, uh, but, uh, and, and of course, there's no one candidate this disadvantages. Each assembly district uh, is uh, obliged to, you know, come up with its own order of candidates. No, none of them, well, rather the Secretary of State, I should say, who's in charge of printing the ballots, uh, designates a different order for each one of the 80 assembly districts. So, uh, you know, there's no one candidate who is going to uh, suffer the <clears throat> grievous disadvantage of his or her name occurring where the ballot is folded. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, there, there's nonsensical phobias uh, uh, that are, are going to be the basis of uh, the these spurious challenges to uh, uh, Newsom if, if, as it now appears, he is retained in office. <coughs> Nevertheless, the historical pattern is that the party in power loses seats in Congress in the, after two years of holding the White House. Nevertheless, Republicans are controlling redistricting based on the new census to gerrymander districts in Republican states, which will create even more Republican districts and eliminate some Democratic districts. And, and Republican states are passing those vote suppression bills. So it does look ominous for Democrats. On the other hand, I'm always trying to find the other hand. Republicans, I wonder if they may be hurt in the midterms a year from this week because they're still so totally tied up with Trump and tied up by Trump and what he wants, what he might do. He is picking primary candidates who support him and keeping everybody else on edge about whether he will run again in 2024. But many of his handpicked candidates are not great choices from the standpoint of actually winning. Uh, the Georgia Senate race is a key example where he's got a former black football star named Herschel Walker, who just filed um, in the primary Republican primary to challenge 
the Democrats' new hero, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, Georgia's first black senator. Herschel Walker is well known as a football player, but has never run for any political office. Uh, he has not been engaged in politics. He lives in Texas, not in Georgia. He's got a history, uh, what shall we say, of violence towards his ex-wife, some questionable business practices. Of course, he'll have a ton of money for TV ads, but uh, that may not be enough if he can't uh, campaign effectively on his own. Uh, and it's not even certain today that he will actually go through with mounting a campaign. So I wonder if Trump isn't creating as many problems for Republicans in the primaries right now as he is solving for them. He is. And the other group causing problems for Republicans uh, is Republicans. <laughs> yes. uh, certainly the uh, Supreme Court allowing the uh, Texas anti-choice, anti-abortion law to go on the books is a kind of thing Democrats will campaign on to turn out more and more women voters and more men voters who are cognizant of the existence of women as uh, sentient beings. Uh, the anti-mask, uh, uh, you know, positions of many Republicans, uh, I think, leave them politically vulnerable, too. And it, it, it's no accident that Gavin Newsom in the last week in California has got ads up, uh, you know, saying, uh, if you uh, dump me, you're going to get a Republican who doesn't want masks and who is uh, anti, you know, would like to curtail uh, abortions. Uh these are, you know, these are issues uh, which I think are Republican gifts to the Democrats to give them something to run on uh, beyond uh, whatever achievements they can claim in the infrastructure and reconciliation bills uh, in, uh, in the 2022 midterms. Yeah, let me just underline the, the history of, of this abortion bill in, in uh, Texas and in national politics. Uh, Democratic strategists have been saying for more than a decade that the worst thing that could happen to the Republicans is if the Supreme Court actually abolished, overturned Roe v. Wade, chipping away at it, elim eliminating some types of abortion. Um, this, the public opinion, doesn't seem to be very engaged with. But opinion polls have shown for decades that a significant majority of Americans and American voters do not want Roe v. Wade repealed. Uh, and Republicans have been very careful to campaign on that, but to make sure it never happens. But now, now the dare I say, the chickens may have come home to roost. It still may be that Chief Justice Roberts will somehow work out a deal with the new Trump appointees so that there won't be a majority to repeal Roe v. Wade. But certainly, in effect, they have already done that with permitting this Texas law to go uh, into effect. Uh, and the issue here is what we call intensity in politics, that the Republican base has had a lot more intensity to vote against abortion than Democrats have had to vote for abortion. You're suggesting that what's happened in Texas and what's happened with the Supreme Court may give the Democrats the intensity that they have been missing around this issue for the last two decades. Yes, because polls repeatedly show that at least 60% of the American public uh, supports, uh, you know, abortion rights. I mean, not in the last two weeks of the pregnancy, but, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, supports it beyond the first six weeks. Uh, 
which is the time period uh, stated in the Texas law. So, uh, no, I think, uh, you know, the, the Republicans could be the dog that caught the car uh, in, in, in this case. There's not, you know, now that they finally have it, it may not work to their advantage. Similarly, their opposition to masking up, I think, also does not work to their advantage. Their base has been crazed by right-wing propaganda, and they either are themselves part of the base or are responding to it, that base is not an, an electoral majority. And if you, you know, drop enough things on that, on, on the larger base's head, you're going to pay a price. So just to sum up where we've been in this conversation, Joe Manchin may settle for $2.9 trillion and the, and the infrastructure, both infrastructure bills uh, will pass. Um, Gavin Newsom looks like he's going to win the California recall. Republican candidates may be crippled by their ties to Trump. Uh, their ab acts on abortion and masking may further mobilize Democrats to vote for them. These are, I'm suddenly feeling better. And it's, I've only been talking to you for 20 minutes. Are there, is there anything else we've missed here on the horizon that might, uh, might point to a less dire future for America in the next months and year? Uh, no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there is, but I am happy to view these, uh, our, our interviews as kind of a therapy session to cheer you up <laughs> and you. you will be receiving a bill in the mail. Thank you. And there's one last thing, just, just yes. to put this on the record. Donald Trump has announced that he will spend the night of September 11th, that's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, providing live commentary on a pay-per-view boxing match between former heavyweight champion Evander Holyfeld, who's been a big supporter of Trump and who stepped in when Oscar de la Hoya tested positive for COVID and could not participate in the heavyweight championship with Vitor ben Belfort. This is going to be at a hotel in Hollywood, Florida. Trump said, quote, I love great fighters and great fights. You won't want to miss this special event, close quote, which can be purchased for $49.99. You can read Harold Meyerson for free, on the other hand, at prospect.org. <laughs> Harold, thanks for talking with us today. It's always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, the story of a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969, the documentary about it, Summer of Soul, is a powerful and moving contribution to the history of the 60s and my favorite documentary of the summer. And the story it tells us was completely unknown. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years, and no one cared. John Powers, critic at large on NPR's Fresh Air, will comment later in the hour. Also coming up, 
your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity, Minneapolis will start voting next week on a proposal to replace the current police department with a new department of public safety. The initiative comes from a coalition of activist groups that gathered thousands of signatures to get the change to the city charter on the ballot after a cop murdered George Floyd last year. But first... Republicans and abortion. It's looking like the post-Trump GOP might actually be worse than it's been in the Trump years. In Texas, maybe you heard, the Republicans are empowering vigilantes to go after people helping women who seek abortions, and they've deputized the state citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash for turning in their neighbors who help women seeking abortions. For comment, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Rick, of course, is the author of the bestseller Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, a New York Times notable book. It's out now in paperback. Before that, of course, there was Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, and the classic Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone, his journalism and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation, among other places. We reached him today somewhere in Marshall County, south of Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Always great to be with you. Well, let's start with this Texas abortion law. The GOP has been anti-abortion for a long time now, but it wasn't always. We've often been told... The Supreme Court made abortion a national political issue with Roe v. Wade in 1973, but really the first time abortion was an issue in a presidential election was before that. It was not a backlash against Roe. It was in 1972, the year before Roe, when Nixon was running for re-election against George McGovern, who they called the candidate of acid amnesty and abortion. I always thought that was unfair because McGovern wasn't for acid. He wasn't for abortion either. He wasn't either. for abortion either, yeah. So at the 1972 Democratic National Convention, um, he leaned on delegates to, to vote against the abortion for everyone everywhere plank because he, you know, for political reasons, he wanted to keep his coalition together. And actually in, in the wonderful Mrs. America miniseries on Schlafly and feminism and anti-feminism, they have a magnificent reconstruction of that day on the convention floor. So not quite so even fair. How did it become an issue going back as far as 1972? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and complicated story. States began putting together liberal abortion laws later in the 60s. In fact, you may recall Ronald Reagan signed one of them. He claimed he was, you know, tricked into it. And there was a loophole that he didn't quite understand. And uh, but New York had a very liberal abortion law. So it was kind of entering the books as an issue going into the late 60s. And it was really uh, a Catholic issue. The Catholic hierarchy despised abortion. Right. They considered it running afoul of you know God's will. And uh, as this issue is beginning to bubble up. It's almost exclusively a Catholic issue when it comes to the uh, activism against it. And that's why Richard Nixon was interested in it, because he was trying to attract, you know, working class Catholics. Catholics were Wilson, overwhelmingly you know. democratic in for decades. Overwhelmingly democratic. So this was kind of part of the culture war agenda 
to attract, you know, union voters, you know, the people who would eventually become uh, Reagan Democrats. And then comes Roe versus Wade. And of course, you know, the Catholic hierarchy is 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 apoplectic. Right. But the, the people who become so important later in the Republican conservative coalition, Protestant evangelicals, fundamentalists um, are um, either indifferent and in some cases even appreciative of Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's a um, very famous and very important Southern Baptist, Baptist minister who had been a segregationist uh, who said that John F. Kennedy was going to, you know, turn America over to the Pope in 1960. His name is Wally Criswell. I read about him in Latin Reagan land because he was really, um, he was recruited by Ford and he became kind of the first Christian right pastor to really kind of um, declare himself four square for the Republican party in 1976, right? But when Roe versus Wade happened, he thought it was a great idea. He was on the record saying it was, it was the best thing since sliced bread. And even before that, before Roe versus Wade, George Wallace was very appreciative of abortion. And, you know, you can find some very racist language from him about how great it was that these brood mares were kind of have an option of not, you know, dropping so many children on the public dime and this terrible, awful stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really shows how abortion was often seen in the context of population control, which was this big issue we don't even really think about anymore. But this idea that somehow people had to figure out a way to keep from overpopulating the earth had its right wing uh, expression. And that was this kind of mild eugenics, right? That it was good that we could, that all these undesirable people could end their pregnancies. And the process that kind of brought the Protestant right wing into the abortion politics was slow. You, you would see in uh, Christianity Today, which was the magazine that was started by Billy Graham, first you see mild kind of agnosticism, sometimes verging into support. And then by 1974, you get this kind of skepticism about abortion and you begin to see things like, um, well, it's not just a Catholic issue anymore. You shouldn't be av avoiding opposing abortion just because it's Catholic. And there was a lot more kind of interdenominational rivalry uh, before the late 70s. And I think basically just what would happen probably from the grassroots was just this sense that abortion liberated women to be sexually free. And you couldn't keep, keep them down on the farm, you know, once they had that kind of freedom. And it kind of spoke to this very basic sense that hierarchy and authority required, you know, basically women's fertility to be to be part of the natural order. And so, you know, by 1976, you do see Jerry Falwell talking about abortion as one of the terrible things that liberals were forcing down each other's throats. And then by 1977, when you really begin to see um, the stirrings of the Christian right around, you know, the anti-gay issues with the Anita Bryant and <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly and the, the feminism stuff, it kind of becomes this kind of densely packed kind of Gordian knot of issues, you know, the Satan's kind of will on earth. And it's, it's, it's of a piece with all these issues of this population of people who's terrified that the kind of social liberation movements, the sixties are beginning to, you know, mainstream themselves even into their small town, such that by 1978, as I write about in, in Reagan land, you begin to see some very hardcore politicking in the off year elections. But the real watershed, I think, was a guy named Francis Schaefer. 
And he was basically a Protestant theologian who did these kind of PBS-style documentaries on how world, the world was going to pop because secular humanism was taking over. And the first one was in 1977. And it was called How Then Shall We Live? And it was like an eight-part thing. And the last episode only was on abortion. And Francis Schaeffer's son, Frankie Schaeffer, was the guy who directed the movie. Uh, you might have seen him at MSNBC. He kind of was an apostate from the Christian right. And one of the things he pointed out was he wanted to put abortion in this documentary, but his dad said, no, it's a Catholic issue. Huh. And the son said, you know, you always complained about those ministers in Nazi Germany who didn't, you know, hold back, who held back their criticisms against, you know, Hitler. And now it's happening again. <laughs> and so he was persuaded. And then two years later, they made another documentary. And that was basically all about abortion as the cornerstone of how Christian civilization was going to collapse. So basically, by 1980, it's just completely stitched into the entire social agenda, social issue agenda for the Republican Party and at the convention, the platform pledges the party to appointing judges who appreciate human life, you know, code word for abortion, and Reagan is for a square for a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion. Now, the Republicans have one problem for all of these decades, and that is that opinion polls show that a majority of Americans do not want Roe v. Wade repealed. This has been true for decades. Opinion polls show that there may be a majority for some kinds of restrictions and you can chip away at this and still have popular support. The rock bottom question, do you support the repeal of Roe v. Wade? Overwhelmingly, Americans have never support, a majority of Americans have never supported this. And that's always been the Republicans' big problem. They can chip away at it, but they can't really overturn it, even though they've mobilized millions of voters around the promise that they will. Today, perhaps we've reached the point where the Republican judges actually will repeal Roe v. Wade. Many Democratic strategists have been saying for years, the best thing that could happen to the National Democrats is for Roe v. Wade to be repealed because that will create intensity around an issue for Democrats where they have not voted with the intensity that the evangelicals have. I wonder if we're reaching that moment now. Well, I have two thoughts about that. First of all, it's always dangerous to kind of wish for reaction. So, you know, we can have progress, right? I mean, that's yes. the old, that's the old Weimar socialist after Hitler, we take over. So we don't want to mess around with this. I mean, people's lives are at stake, right? But the other issue is, uh, and that is where the actions, not just of Texas, but even more importantly, of the Supreme Court of the United States, not enjoining this obviously unconstitutional law and deciding it in this shadow docket that they use for, you know, kind of last minute death penalty appeals that, you know, creates no written record, plays into the overwhelming transcendent issue that has us fighting for democracy itself in the year 2021. And that is what rolls up the abortion issue now in the January 6th insurrection issue, all the violence we're seeing around the country. And that's that's the issue of the Republican Party in full retreat from democracy. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the Reagan coalition was a concerted and successful attempt to put together a majority coalition. And they get this remarkable landslide in 1984. Basically, they were able to win the House of Representatives in 1994. But now 
they only have uh, a ceiling of, say, 45% of the popular votes. So everything they do in order to achieve their goals, which they see in kind of transcendent and apocalyptic civilization versus barbarism terms, they have to achieve using non-democratic methods. And that takes us right back to Texas. Not only have they created this vigilante thing around abortion, they have these new voting rights bills that are empowering the people they call poll watchers to move freely within polling sites, making it a criminal offense to obstruct poll watchers in their, quote, observation of election workers. Uh, this is another side of this anti-democratic authoritarian push that you are talking about. Yes, and of course, I've been tracing this one since, you know, 1962, and, you know, Operation Eagle Eye and, you know. Operation Eagle Eye. What was that? That was where Justice Rehnquist got his start in Arizona politics? Well, not his start. He was already kind of had a nice head of steam and was a leader in the party by 1962 when he helped lead the efforts and personally participated in, you know, doing just the kind of nominal poll watching, but actual poll intimidation. You know, I wrote a big article about this in uh, Talking Points Memo, and you can find it by Googling uh, talking dogs, Rick Perlstein and talking voting dogs. Basically, this is a you know steady, 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 steady process that, uh, you know, really, this is only the apotheosis of. You know, it's but in 1962, it was a secret. It took historians like Rick Perlstein to uncover and publicize what Rehnquist had been doing in his young life now it is it's one of those it's one of those things that uh, the trump era turned a dog whistle into a train whistle now it's the official policy you know the implicit policy that everyone in a urban area somehow is suspect as a voter is now you know an explicit policy and the idea that you know when you when you see one of these kind of corn fed middle americans you know look into a tv camera and say it's obvious that that Biden didn't win, you can hear very similar expressions, you know, all through the history of American reaction. And it really kind of comes down to the notion that, you know, American cities run by minorities, run by Democrats, Democrats are so corrupt that there really are these giant boat harvesting, you know, operations. You see that all the time in 1960s rhetoric and 1970s rhetoric and 1980s rhetoric. And, you know, that's why the Republican National Committee you know, had to reach a settlement, you know, not to try to do all this stuff. 2016 was when that settlement uh, in a case from New Jersey uh, wasn't renewed. And in was it the Burwell case, the Chief Justice John Roberts overturned the portion of the Voting Rights Act that required Southern states to check their voting laws with the Justice Department before they initiated them. So all these things kind of come together and we have this attempt to basically force reactionary policies down the American people's throats, whether they have democratic sanction or not, through all sorts of you know, multivariate strategies. And this is just one of the many. And then you get into the whole business of how Federal Society and Leonard Leo have run this kind of this secret, you know, money laundering operation to turn Supreme Court vacancies into right-wing democracy-stealing opportunities. And this is really, in a lot of ways, all these different paths kind of leading to the destination, which are policy outcomes that turn America into this feudalist 19th century country. 
feudal. We didn't have feudalism in the 19th century, but. Uh, <laughs> okay. This whole conversation, we've barely mentioned Donald Trump. It seems like he's just kind of a small player in this long story. Well, he's one of many uh, important players, but Donald Trump is an important player because he's kind of licensed these kind of demonic energies that have been present but suppressed within the Republican coalition. It's kind of open season. So you get a figure like you know Lindsey Graham saying Ronald, uh, Donald Trump is a clown in 2016, and then by his own reelection in 2018 is talking like Donald Trump and saying black, black men are perfectly safe in South Carolina so long as they're not liberal. You know, you know, so what happened, you know, Lindsey Graham, I think, you know, these, you, you have these kind of fundamentally authoritarian reactionary minds realizing that Trump was an opportunity, that they don't have to censor themselves anymore. And they can achieve things through anti-democratic means that they can never achieve through democratic means. And it all feeds into the same logic. We'd always been able to kind of patch the dam against the raging of this sort of reactionary onslaught. And, you know, Donald Trump, you know, was the guy who breached the dam. And now we're dealing with these onrushing consequences. Rick Perlstein, his book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, is out now in paperback. Thank you, Rick. Let's do this again soon. Always great to be with you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We have to talk about Summer of Soul, a documentary about a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969. It might be the most powerful and moving thing I've seen about the 60s anywhere. And the story it tells is about a series of events that were completely unknown to almost all of us. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years, and no one cared. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of several million listeners. He's also been a film critic for Vogue, and before that, for the late lamented L.A. Weekly. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. John Powers, welcome back. Oh, glad to be here. So how did you like Summer of Soul? I like Summer of Soul. I mean, I mean, I, I, what's not to like about Summer of Soul? The thing is, even if one didn't like parts of the film, the musical performances in it are so fantastic with the full range of Black American music. And in fact, not just Black American music, African Black music and Cuban Black music. The people are so sensational that even if you didn't care about any of the political stuff, although you should, if even if you didn't care about it, you'd, you'd really enjoy yourself. And it's clear about the time frame in which this is happening. America in 1969, Nixon is president, the Vietnam War is raging. It's only a year after the assassinations of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. It's one year after huge riots in Harlem following the assassination of King. So it's a year with a huge burden of, of sadness and anger. And they are here, along with the joy of the music, especially personified by and enacted by Jesse Jackson. 
I would add to the historical thing, Whitey's on the moon. Because one of the things that in the film is that you even see a news broadcast from the period where, where the reporter goes to Harlem during this festival and asks people what they think of the moonshot. And let me tell you, they were less impressed than the white Americans that were interviewed <laughs> in, that, in that same broadcast. And that's part of it as well. And then you would add in, this is just weeks off the existence of Woodstock. It's sometimes been called Black Woodstock just for, for that reason. So you, you have this moment, and it is a spectacular moment, and then growing out of it is this music event that somehow takes on more meaning than a normal music event because it, it, it comes at the end into some, some sort of expression of, culmination of, and response to all of the things you just mentioned. Let's talk about the musical highlights. For me, I think it was... Uh... The gospel. As you say, there's many genres of black music at this many weeks of Sunday afternoons in the park. The Edwin Hawkins singer's Oh Happy Day. I mean, I haven't heard that for a long time, that great woman with the alto voice. And then there's the moment when the incredible Mavis Staples helps Mahalia Jackson sing Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which we are told is this Martin Luther King's favorite song. It's the one he requested just moments before he was killed. That is a pretty overwhelming moment on film. Oh, oh it is, you know, because what, what's interesting is, as they tell us, that Mahalia is saying she's not feeling well. So she, so she asked Mavis Staples to come. And then Mavis Staples sings it about as well as you could ever imagine it being sung. And then gives it over to Mahalia Jackson. And, you know, it, it is as if, Mount Everest or something, something, something so huge and elemental had spent their entire life training themselves to be a genius singer. <laughs> because, because it, and clearly there's a boost when she sings. Mavis Staples is great. And yet you can see why Mavis Staples says she idolizes Mahalia Jackson. Because Mahalia Jackson does seem to, oh, maybe she's like a volcano. Like all of the history and pain of this seems to be there in her body as she yeah. sings. She is so powerful and grounded and talented. I want to make sure I'm not saying that some of this is just like natural gifts. She's trained herself for decades to do this, to channel this incredible power of the terrible history of her people. And she does it. And it, it, is, it is a knockout. But I know the people who followed that on that day would have been cursing cursing the festival organizers until the end of time for having to follow that performance. Yes. So this film has really it's really two different films. There's the there's the footage shot in 1969 by some guy no one has ever heard of and no one ever heard of since who tried to get it and turned into some sort of a TV series and failed and then just kept the stuff in his basement and then died. It was not a great, I, I, I mean, I, I hate to be mean to him. He couldn't have been a great producer because, you know, he, he didn't seem to try hard enough or go to the right people. You know, back at the time when the Muhammad Ali Kinshasa film came out, you would have thought, oh, you could have gone to some of those people then and said, oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah. we have this incredible, but they didn't. You know, so it, it has been, it been forgotten. So you have that footage. And then we have the footage shot in the last year or two by Questlove, uh, who has lined up some wonderful talking heads. Uh, let's talk about them. Well, I mean, I was happier with the, the talking heads who had just been the people who were there. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think somehow I, I didn't need to see Chris Rock come and say his one <laughs> sentence about how important it was. Some of the famous people mattered less to me. There's one of the talking heads who is especially notable, and that's Charlene Hunter Galt, the black uh, news person. I had sort of forgotten her story, but she was the first black student at the University of Georgia. And she moved it. She tells the story of how she moved into the dorms. They put her alone on the first floor, and the white girls were upstairs pounding on the ceiling above her room. And she says she drowned them out by playing Nina Simone records. Wow. I think it's actually also interesting because when, when someone like Charlene Hunter Galt, they become famous for being distinguished. Yes. And, you know, it's, and it's very easy. And it's easy to forget that before she was distinguished, she was incredibly brave. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. She was heroic before she, before she was a person that you thought of as just distinguished. And then she also tells the story of fighting with the New York Times to get the word black and rather than Negro, used as the standard at the newspaper. And she succeeded. And she succeeded. You, <laughs> yes. know, you, you thought, like, you know, like, which is a, once again, a huge thing. Some of the other Questlove talking heads include the performers shot today who he shows video of them 50 years ago on stage in Harlem, especially two people from the Fifth Dimension who, who tear up, uh, and uh, a magnificent Gladys Knight who says something important was happening that day and it wasn't just the music. It's great to see those people. Oh, it is great. You know, I mean, it's, it's actually interesting, you know, because you see Marilyn McCoo, who, you know, and part of the whole fifth dimension thing was that were they thought to be, people thought they were white. And if you're a black performer doing music that many people think means you're white, you know, it's important to perform for them there. And then, of course, the problem is Marilyn McCoo is exceedingly beautiful. So, I mean, so one of the yes. other things is she's yes. so beautiful that, that actually people there at the time are looking at her thinking, boy, she's really beautiful. Yeah. And, 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 and in fact, 50 years on, she's, she looks fantastic. Some of the various political people from that era, the Black Panther and so forth, it was actually interesting to hear them talk. Hmm. You know, I mean, and, and that's good. And it's partly because the, the film has a shape and an argument to make. Um, and, you know, the, the shape is how it is this moment of this expression. And Mahalia Jackson fits in the logic of it. And, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, because I may be wrong with this. I, as I was watching, I was thinking, Mahalia Jackson is transcendence through faith and all of the pain in the world. And so and at some level, she's the past. Yes. In, you know, in 1969, she's the past. Yes, she's been doing this for 30 years. She's been doing it for 30 years. And and somehow African-American politics have moved on somehow beyond that. At that moment, everyone worships her. She's so great, but they, they want something new. Probably Nina Simone is the present, which is you get the pain with her, but also with song like Young, Gifted, and Black, you get, the you, you get a projection of the future. And then the film ends with Sly and the Family Stone because they are almost the embodiment of the future because they're different races, you know, women playing trumpets, which one of the people says, well, I've never seen a woman play a trumpet before. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know, they're wearing wild clothes and they are communal. They, you know, they are the age of Aquarius that the Fifth Dimension was singing about. But I think there's an argument so that you actually start with Mahalia Jackson and then you and then you go to Nina Simone and then Sly Sly and the family or Sly and the family to end it. 
you know, and of course, Questlove in making this film hasn't shown it in order. I mean, right. I, it's an, it's very important to realize, you know, when you're watching it, that he, that he, as any sensible person would, wants to make an argument about about where things are going and and to end on the high of them singing, "I want to take you higher." Yes. You know, which which had incidentally was one of the high points of the film Woodstock, if you recall. I mean, is that this was the point where probably Sly and the Family Stone were much greater than probably a lot of us realized at the time. Certainly a lot of white people realized at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were just spectacular. And this is, I believe, Questlove's first film. Who exactly is he? Oh, he was he was a guy with the roots. You know, I mean, he's a drummer. Um, he was a musician. I mean, he clearly was a guy who is an expansive musician. You know, you know, I mean, I mean, some think out in larger ways. And clearly, this was an event when when he discovered there's footage of it. I can imagine that he would leap to it, and then because you know he's politically minded. If if 1969 is is a point where you were going to have this event probably the year after George Floyd and during at, at the end of Trumpism, this is the year you're going to bring that out as part of this huge explosion of great stuff that's suddenly being discovered or rediscovered. This is a, it's a movie about a moment at another moment that is the kind of, the same kind of moment where you're seeing all of this stuff coming together. Summer of Soul. Questlove's first film is running now on Hulu. John Powers. John, thank you. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One more thing. Your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minneapolis will start voting next week on a proposal to replace the current police department with a new Department of Public Safety. The initiative comes from a coalition of activist groups that gathered thousands of signatures to get the change to the city charter on the November ballot after a cop murdered George Floyd last year. Supporters of the proposal say the new department will include police officers as well as licensed professionals and experts and that the goal is to shift the city's response to calls to the police away from the police and towards social services or other approaches. It would expand a push that's already underway in Minneapolis and lots of other places to transfer jobs traditionally done by the police to other civilian departments. The city, for example, now encourages residents to report property crimes by calling 311 instead of 911, thereby avoid involving the police. There's a similar plan to send out civilians instead of police to calls involving mental health crises. The city has already moved its crime prevention program out of the police department. One of the big questions in Minneapolis and lots of other places is how many cops does a city really need? Los Angeles, for example, for a long time had the idea that 10,000 cops was the right number for Los Angeles. But when you look at where did that number come from, it was just sort of a convenient political slogan from a decade or two ago. In Minneapolis, before George Floyd, the city had 900 cops, but more than 200 of them quit, retired, or claimed disability after that. 
Meanwhile, there's been a big increase in gun violence in Minneapolis this year, which opponents of the change to the city charter say is evidence that the city needs more police, not fewer. Supporters of the proposal to replace the current police department with a new Department of Public Safety include Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Member of Congress Ilhan Omar. Opponents of the change include Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry. Residents are being bombarded by high-priced mailers making various kinds of misleading and dishonest claims. No doubt more of that will be coming as outside money pours in to the Minneapolis referendum on replacing the current police department with a new Department of Public Safety. Early voting begins in Minneapolis on September 17th. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.